Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Afwa Hush. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges, and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, and in today's podcast, I'm recording this intro from the Royal Armouries in Leeds. We're up at the Royal Armouries today to film some Roman chariots, to look at gladiators too, all coming to History Hit in due course. But today's podcast episode is nothing to do with that. We're talking about Iron Age Britain once again. It was wonderful to see how well received our episodes on Iron Age Wales and on Iron Age Britain have been over the past month or so. And now we're heading north to Iron Age, Scotland. We're focusing in on a particular hoard of silver objects discovered near the modern city, near the beautiful capital of Scotland, Edinburgh. This is the Traprane treasure, dating to late in the Roman period in Britain. It shines a light on these connections between Iron Age peoples in modern-day Scotland and the wider Roman Empire. Now, to talk through all of this, the Japrane treasure, this great treasure of Iron Age Scotland, I was delighted to interview Dr. Fraser Hunter. Fraser, he's a curator at the National Museum of Scotland. He's presented documentaries on TV before. He's a legend. He's a wonderful speaker. And he talks through this topic with such passion, with such interest. It was just a delight to have him on the pod for this extraordinary part of Iron Age Scotland's history. So without further ado, to talk all about the Traprane treasure, this great Roman treasure of Iron Age Scotland, here's Fraser. Fraser, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast today. So delighted to be here. And particularly to talk about this topic, correct me if I'm wrong, but the story of the largest hoard of Roman silver ever found outside the Roman Empire. I mean, Fraser, to be an expert in this, that's quite a catchline. 
It is an absolutely remarkable find to work with. We're really lucky to have that in the museum here in Edinburgh. It is a find of international importance. And you can choose your superlatives. You know, it's the, the biggest hoard beyond the edge of the empire. But if this particular kind of silver, the hacked up and crushed silver, which is the nature of Traprain, it's the biggest from anywhere, full stop. There's nothing like this. Now, you mentioned Edinburgh, so a bit of a clue there. But what is Traprain law? Whereabouts are we talking in Britain? We are sitting in the southeast of Scotland here. So Traprain lies about 30 kilometres east of Edinburgh, east of the market town of Haddington. And it's a, it's like it's a failed volcano. It's a, what's called a lacolith, a, a volcanic chamber that never exploded. And when the glaciation happened, it eroded all the softer soil around about, leaving this massive rock sticking out of the fertile rolling East Lothian plain. These are the grain fields of East Lothian. Because it's a big dominant hill, it's attracted human attention for millennia. So when the first people come into Scotland after the Ice Age, there is settlement under Brain Law. And the site has been used again and again ever since. And so it's been used again and again ever since. So talk me through in a bit more detail about the site's ancient occupation, because from what you're saying, it was occupied for hundreds, if not thousands of years in antiquity. Yeah, Traprain is a microcosm of Scottish history. And it's one of the most important archaeological sites in the country. So we see these fleeting footprints of the Mesolithic hunter-gatherers. We see a thin scatter of the microliths that would have been the, the, the armatures on their arrowheads as they were out hunting. We see rather more sustained evidence of activity in the Neolithic, the time of the first farmer, some five to 6,000 years ago. But not really evidence of settlement on the hill. There's a whole series of stone axe heads, but nothing in the way of pottery. So it may be it's a place they're visiting or conducting rituals at, rather than a place where they're living. And ritual seems to be a key aspect of the site, because moving into the Bronze Age, some four, four and a half thousand years ago, we see evidence of burials taking place on the site. We see evidence of it being marked as a special place by rock art. There are cup and ring markings and other rock art that is seen as at this time as marking places that are special or sacred in some way. So it is, if you like, seen as an important hill, a sacred hill at this period. But that changes, and we see this changing use of the hill throughout its history. So come the late Bronze Age, 3,000 years ago, we suddenly see the first evidence of substantial occupation on the site. This is when the, the first ramparts are built and the first real evidence of settlement. Not just a, an everyday farm, this is a major power centre, a place that is in contact with things happening in the rest of Europe. We see evidence of imported goods, we see evidence of the production of bronze metalwork, not just bangles and rings, but things like swords, the attributes of warriors at this time. So this was a major centre, and then it falls from use. So it goes from being this highly occupied central place in the late Bronze Age to being a place in most of the Iron Age is visited but not lived in. So our excavations show that the ramparts are maintained and new ramparts are built, but there's no houses at this time. Settlement has moved out into the landscape. There's a whole series of small-scale hill forts, effectively villages in the surrounding landscape. And it seems to praying for the Iron Age people at this time is a place where they come to gather on high days and holy days. It's not a place where they live. Now that changes again in what's really the peak of our story, the focus of our story, which is the Roman period. And, and here we would call that the Roman Iron Age. We're not really part of the Roman world. We sit on the edge of the Roman world. The Romans come in and out. So Roman Iron Age gets quite, quite a nice term for it. And Traprain becomes a boom town at this period. People 
we suspect power-hungry people move back onto the hill, become friends of Rome, become people who deal with the Roman world, and that's perhaps a topic worth exploring in itself, and it therefore becomes one of the major sites of this period, receiving the favour of Rome for hundreds of years. And even as Rome's power declines in the 5th century, they stay in contact with the folk and Triprane. It's an incredible long-lived story. Well, Fraser, I was going to ask a bit more about that now, because when you mention like, the Roman period in Britain, of course, that spans several centuries. But it sounds like from what you're saying there, is it the same uh, type of people, as it were, who are occupying Triprane law, this area of southeast Scotland, over those several centuries with interactions with the Romans? It's very hard to talk about who the people themselves are. And what we don't see is any evidence of significant population change over the the late Bronze Age and the Iron Age. So 1000 BC up to the Roman period and beyond, there's no significant population shift that we can identify. What seems to change effectively is society and the politics rather than the people. The centuries after Rome, we do begin to see changes. We see the spread of the Anglo-Saxon world, for example, into southeastern Scotland. But we don't really see evidence of any large-scale population movement over that period. So I think it is very much the changing society and the changing politics that is changing the nature of Triprane. So talk to me, therefore, about the discovery of this horde. Go wild. The horde was found just over 100 years ago. So there, there was a series of excavations on the hill running from 1914 to 1923. And they were led by the Society of Antiquities of Scotland, and in particular directed by a gentleman called Alexander Curl. And Curl has a, a good claim to be the, seen as the first professional archaeologist in Scotland. He was the first person to run organised surveys in the country. He was then director of the National Museum of Antiquities of Scotland, which was the big archaeology museum and moved on to another museum job shortly afterwards. And Curl was a polymath. He worked across a whole range of material. He was also a really enthusiastic excavator. And he spotted this hill, saw the ramparts, and thought this had enormous potential to illuminate what was happening inside one of these hill forts. So he dug in 1914 and 1915, using labourers. This was the way at that time. So Curl would visit the site every few days to see what was happening. The Great War, the First World War intervened and in fact his labour force ended up in the trenches and unfortunately survived the experience. And they restarted the excavations in 1919. Two weeks into that, Curl got a phone call telling him that they had found something. But because, of course, this wasn't the days of mobile phones, they had to go down to the public phone box in East Linton, the nearest village, to, to call the museum. So they were very guarded in what they said. And Curl simply didn't realise the importance of it. So he didn't jump in the car and rush out to sight. He had things to do in town. He went out after lunch the next day. And his diary describes how he strolled up the hill, taking the odd photograph, not expecting the discovery would be anything spectacular. And you can then hear the excitement in his voice when you, when you read his diary entry. Imagine my surprise when I saw ranged against the side of the trench an amazing array of silver. And there was this huge pile of silver discovered by the workmen. The first bit, it turns out, they've been gently loosening the soil with picks and the first silver vessel turned up on the, the tip of the pick of the workmen and they then carefully excavated roundabout and curl was met by this magnificent array of silver on the trench edge. And what sorts of objects were uncovered via the pick, as it were? The first find was a small bow, and they then very carefully excavated the remainder of it. I mean, not the way we'd excavate it today, I should say that straight away. It was well excavated by the standards of the period, 
but we would, of course, be able to do far more with it today. Nevertheless, the workmen did a very good job. There's very little damage sustained by the stuff during excavation. Most of the damage was either done in antiquity, because this material was broken up, or it was done in burial. Silver does not survive well in the ground. And so there had been a lot of corrosion, a lot of conservation work was needed to get it back to the glorious silver form you see it in today. And this silver, just to stress here, this isn't everyday silver. Or I'm not sure you can really say everyday silver, but this silver in Roman times, this was really high level. This was really, really elite stuff that they uncovered, was it, Fraser? Yeah, absolutely. We were looking at the, the late Roman period, so the late 4th, early 5th century. And at this point, the main one of the main roles of silver is as tableware, is as showing off at elite level dining, or is used in beauty treatment as a key part of feminine beauty, silver mirrors and silver wash basins and so on. This is very much top level Roman society stuff. So not everybody would get access to silver of this quality. And before we delve into the questions why, just kind of keeping on the early 20th century a bit more, because of course, you know, this is around the time that Tutankhamun's tomb will be discovered in a, a few years later. But it, it feels like this is another of these huge, incredible discoveries that is made at the turn of the 20th century or in the early 20th century. Mm. And it's in Britain. It's not in Egypt. This is in Britain that this huge hoard was discovered. Yeah, there's enormous excitement at the time. You can see that the discovery is reported a couple of days later in the Times and various other newspapers. This generates a lot of excitement about it. You see continental scholars writing in to find out more about it. Um, Curl is giving lectures all around the country. There's enormous interest in this find. And it also catches the popular imagination, both in the course of the restoration work and when replicas are made, but also things like cigarette cards. There's a series of cigarette cards are made of treasure trove. One of those includes Tutankhamun's treasure. One of those includes the treasure of Trepray, and it's seen very much in those terms. There you go, the two T's right there. I mean, Fraser, therefore that begs the question, why? What are the theories as to why all of this broken up, these fragments of Roman silver, is at Trepain law at the end of the Roman period? There's two avenues to take in this. One is why Trepain and one is why it's broken. Let's start with why it's broken. So this material is not pristine. If you're used to seeing the silver in the Louvre or the British Museum, our silver does not look like that. This is Roman silver that's come to a bad end, if you like. It's been chopped, crushed and broken. And that's where the term hack silver comes from. It gives you a sense of the treatment of this material. But hack silver is also a bit pejorative. It sounds like it's met the blade of a barbarian axe. And that was certainly Curl's interpretation. He thought this was the work of pirates because only barbarians could possibly break up this wonderful Roman silver, these fantastic pieces of art. But there are problems with that interpretation, one of which comes from the site itself. Trepain had been a home of friendly people, people who were in good terms with the Romans for hundreds of years. It was, if you like, almost a client kingdom of Rome, beyond the edge of the empire. This was a friendly state that was dealing in good terms with Rome and was, if you like, making sure there was a buffer between the Roman world and the emerging problems to the north, the developing power of the Picts. So why would they suddenly turn on these people who had been dealing with for hundreds of years? And at exactly this same period, we see other rich Roman import goods coming off the site, which don't look like loot. So one of the things we've been trying to do over the last decade or more now, is look again at this whole question of hack silver. Is this the work of barbarians or is there something else lying behind it? And 
that's really been one of the key angles, finding new aspects on hack silver. How, therefore, I mean, keep going then. So how could this hack silver be potentially valuable to the people of Traprain if it's not in a hostile relationship with Rome at that time? There's two things that we noticed when we began to look at the question of hack silver. I, I worked very closely on this with the late Kenneth Painter, who was a great expert on gold and silver from the British Museum. And one of the things we noticed is we took all the evidence of hack silver since Curl. Curl knew very few examples of hack silver. We can now plot over 60 hoards, including Roman hack silver. The first thing to notice is these do not just occur beyond the Roman Empire. They occur inside the Roman Empire as well, particularly in the northwestern provinces. So this is not just, if you like, a barbarian habit. It can't be all be explained away as people looting and pillaging. The second point is the care that is taken over the cutting up of this material. This is being done in the first phase by skilled metalsmiths who are using chisels and shears to divide this material very carefully. If it's being done by barbarians, they are obsessive compulsive barbarians because they're being very, very careful in how they cut things up, for example, into halves or quarters or sixths. So then you think, well, why the care? Why are they being so careful? To understand that, you need to understand the basis of the Roman economy at this time. So a silver plate may be absolutely beautiful and covered in glorious decoration, but the basic value of it is the weight of silver. The art is lovely, the silver is the value. Bullion is the basic value of silver and gold at this time. So many vessels are made to set weights of silver. If I have a dish weighing a pound and I chop it up into four, I automatically have four lumps of a quarter of a pound of silver. So what we discovered was that the first phase of hacking up of silver takes place inside the Roman world at times of economic stress, when the people in powerful people in the Roman world themselves are turning their portable possessions into bullion, into raw material. It may be a lovely silver plate, its basic value is raw material. So at a time of stress, you need bullion. So this preparing treasure was more bullion than booty, shall we say, and the silver may well, well was cut up before it even reached the people of Traprain. This is what the people of Traprain wanted. They wanted it cut up. Well, whether they wanted it or not, we don't know what their agency is involved in this. This is what the Roman world is providing. Right across the northwestern frontier at this time, silver is moving as bullion. This is less true in the Eastern Empire. So, for example, there's a series of rich burials at Kerch and Crimea, which have produced beautiful Roman silver bowls of exactly this period. Some of those silver bowls actually modified for suspension. They're very clearly display items, not bullion. So you see different treatments in different areas. Hack silver within the Roman world is mostly a phenomenon of the northwestern provinces. And we know that in both the 3rd and the 4th centuries, there's enormous economic turmoil in these areas. In the 3rd century, in particular in Gaul and Germany because of raids from across the frontier. And then in the late 4th century, Britain comes under turmoil as the empire begins to collapse. So you can see these moments where you can imagine a powerful Roman wants to convert their plates into cash, wants to make sure that they have the, the bullion to hand. But there's also then the question of why does it move beyond the frontier? So the basic motivation of hacking up your silver is economic at times of stress, whether it's personal crisis, you're, you're a time of you know, your crops have failed, whether it's wider ranging crisis because there's barbarians banging on the gates. Why does it move beyond the frontier? And this seems to be part of a deliberate Roman policy of subsidy. You're either paying people off 
or hiring soldiers. So we see literary references to gold and silver being used to effectively pay off barbarians beyond the Rhine and beyond the Danube. We also see silver being used to pay soldiers, both formal troops and people we would now call mercenaries, federati. So my suspicion, my strong suspicion with Traprain is that this stuff is coming north as payment for services rendered. Services in keeping the northern frontier secure, service in providing swords in the service of Rome. And we see that in some of the fittings from the site where there are bits of late Roman military equipment from the other finds discovered. It almost sounds like a buffer zone kind of thing, Fraser. It's exactly that. The Roman world doesn't stop at the frontier. Hadrian's Wall is just a line. The Romans always have an interest beyond that. They often think they control the lands beyond that. But they can't just control that by by scouting, for example, or by expeditions. They also need friendly faces beyond the frontier. And particularly in southeastern Scotland at this time, they seem to be developing it as a buffer zone. It's not just Traprain, although Traprain is the main focus. They are pumping other material into eastern Scotland, up the east coast to Fife to the Firth of Tay. Beyond that, there's a gap in Roman material. And beyond that lies the Picts. And it's almost certainly tied into the emerging power of the Picts as a threat for the Roman world. So they are trying to develop friends who are effectively a cushion between the Romans and the Picts beyond. Did Edison really take credit for things he didn't invent? Were treadmills originally a form of corporal punishment? And would man have ever got to the moon without the bra? You can expect answers to all these questions and more in the brand new podcast from history hit, patented History of Inventions. Join me, Dallas Campbell, as I uncover what really sparked history's most impactful ideas. Each episode, I'll be recruiting the help of experts, scientists, historians, and even a few real-life inventors. Subscribe to Patented History of Inventions wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello, host of Dan Snow's History at Podcast here. History isn't just dates and facts. It's about the incredible stories that shape our world. Three times a week on my podcast, my expert guests and I bring you extraordinary stories of heroism, discovery, mystery, and power. Expect tales of lost tombs, daring escapes, power-hungry rulers, and those determined to bring them all down. If you're a history lover or just looking for a good tale, you want to check out Dan Snow's History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Do we know at all why or how the people of Traprain Law, for instance, would have wanted to use this cut-up silver once they'd received it? Yeah, we do. We've got really good evidence for that because I said the initial steps of this hacking was being done very carefully. One of the things I spent more days than is sensible doing was staring down a microscope at the cut-up edges. So not for me, the glamour of the art. I was looking at the little broken edges, trying to work out how they were chopped up. And what you see is different phases of tool marks. 
and different degrees of care being taken. And from that, you can argue these things are being cut up in different times and places. Some of these people are trained metalsmiths within the Roman world. Some are trained metalsmiths beyond the Roman world. Some are not metalsmiths at all. They're just breaking up silver. So we can see that some of the silver lives several lives. It's probably moving around quite a bit before it gets to Trebrain. Some of it is coming directly to Trebrain. Now on the stuff from Trebrain, we can see a very distinctive form of tool mark. It's almost like somebody's nibbled along the edge with a, with a small tool. And what they're doing, I think, is creating little strips of silver that they break off and put into a crucible for melting it down. A crucible is just a ceramic pot for melting metal. When we analyse those crucibles, when we analyse the surface of them using X-ray fluorescence, we can see that there is silver in some of the crucibles from the site. So we can prove that silver is being worked on Traprain Law. We then start opening the drawers in the collection and we find both small and large silver items from the site. Tiny pins and finger rings and grand silver neck chains. Now silver at this period is something new. In the world beyond the frontier, they didn't have silver. So this exotic Roman metal coming in almost as an emblem of the emperor's treatment of you, their desire to deal with you, is a marker for these people. A new metal, an exotic metal with imprint of Rome on it. So silver has a power far beyond what we would imagine it has today. I'll definitely go back to that in a bit. And just before we really delve into some of these particular artifacts that were discovered, you mentioned that they have the imprint of Rome. And one other thing I'd love to ask is, do we know from where in the Roman Empire some of this silver came from? Because I believe you've also done a bit of work around this too. Yeah, that's always been one of the big questions. So when Curl published his material, he thought at the time the connections were to Gaul and perhaps to Rome itself, because there were very few finds of silver at that date from Britain. Really, discoveries since the Second World War have revealed that Britain was a, a land rich in silver. Britannia, south of the wall, was a land rich in silver. But the question of where the silver was coming from, where was it being made, has always been problematic. And this is mainly because Roman silversmiths are drawing from a very consistent decorative pool. So some of the vessels that we find in Traprain or in other hordes like Milton Hall in Suffolk, you find exactly the same vessels in Surrey. Similar styles right across the Roman world. So style doesn't help us. There's been loads of arguments over artistic developments, but they actually don't help us pinpoint where the stuff's coming from. What does help us is science. And what we've been trying to do is look at the silver and also look at the other things associated with the silver. The technique that can help us understand this is a technique called lead isotope analysis. Silver very rarely occurs native. It's not like gold. So gold is discovered uncorrupted in nature. This is very rare for silver. Most silver is extracted from lead. So you smelt rock to create lead and you then extract the silver from the lead. So it's a two-stage process. Because it's come out of lead, little traces of the lead survive. And we can measure the different isotopes of lead. And these isotopes help us to work out the geological age of the lead and therefore where it comes from. And different lead in different parts of the world is of different geological age. So the isotopes are a fingerprint. They allow us to see where the silver is coming from. Now, we've not yet been able to get the funding together to analyse the silver. If there's any wealthy listeners in the background, I'd be delighted to hear from them. What we have been able to do as a trial, really, is to look at the solder. Solder is the glue that holds some of these vessels together, and solder is an alloy of lead and tin. 
But the other reason I started with solder, it wasn't just traditional Scottish meanness. It was also because one of the big questions is, of course, silver gets recycled. And if you recycle silver from different sources, you mess up the fingerprint. Whereas solder is very unlikely to be recycled. This is just the glue. So the chances are you take the local glue and use it to stick the silver together. So we analysed all the solder we could find in the hoard, which was five or six fragments. And it doesn't match the Mediterranean. It doesn't come from Eastern Med. It doesn't come from Spain or these other great sources of, of silver and lead. It comes from Western Germany or from Britain itself. So it shows that the silver is being assembled in the provinces and the chances are it's being, some of it at least, is being made in the provinces. So the next clue will be to look at the silver once we get some money together because colleagues working on a big hoard from Hungary have been applying this kind of same technique and they've got excellent results pinpointing particular ore sources. So that's really going to be the next, I think, exciting stage in the development of the story of telling where the silver comes from is revealing the workshops through lead isotope analysis. And the clues already are fascinating. Already, and I love the fact, once again, as so many times in this podcast and so many episodes gone by, how ancient history is still alive and kicking, how we're still going to find so much more thanks to science and in the years ahead. I mean, so let's now delve into some of these artefacts proper Fraser, as you've mentioned already, a wide range of silver vessels. I mean, what types of vessels do we have from the hoard? There's a couple of things worth saying. One is the time depth. So we think the hoard is being buried in the middle of the 5th century, but the earliest vessels date 100 to 150 years before that. So it shows the hoard is accumulating over a period of time. And that suggests people entrepreneurs dealing with the Roman world receiving this material over a long period. Because antique silver is relatively unusual in the Roman world. Stuff gets recycled and reused very quickly. So we're seeing a long build-up. Within that build-up, the two main categories of vessels are either tableware, so things that come from elite dining services, or what you'd call toilet silver. And these are things related very much to feminine ideas of beauty. So the wealthy woman of the household would be using silver as part of her washing and beauty regime. And the fact you're using silver, of course, is a key part of showing your status. And I'd love, therefore, to delve into the decoration because we, on many of these vessels, don't we, we get just such an incredible amount of decoration. What sorts of decoration are we talking about? You see both pagan items, if you like, figures straight from Roman mythology. So we see figures such as Hercules and Pan and Bacchus and, and a Nereids, a sea nymph. There's a glorious fluted basin, which is a, a basin for, for hand washing or for washing yourself, with a sea nymph riding on a sea panther. It's, it's an absolutely magnificent piece of work. Then you also see Christian items. So we see the earliest pieces of Christian iconography that we have from Scotland whether that's emblems of with the Cairo symbol, the first two letters of Christ's name in Greek, but also a wonderful flagon with a series of biblical scenes from the Old and the New Testament on it. So there's a real mixture of material, confirming again this mixture of sources from which the material is coming. Well, you mentioned that flagon there. That is something that I'd love to really focus in on, and I'd love you to take it away with all of the detail to really describe this flagon, because of all the objects, this run... It seems about the trend of the, it's not a fragment. This seems to be a huge thing. And it, it is so beautiful when you see images of it. What is it? We should be a little cautious because it looks lovely today, but it has been stuck back together. <laughs> um, oh, okay. Fair enough. And this has been <laughs> the case with a lot of the silver from the hoard. It was very heavily restored at the time. Now, having said that, all the component parts are there. 
So this is a piece that had been chopped. It was cho- the neck was taken off. It the, the rim was taken off it, and the vessel was chopped in half. But then the whole vessel came north, and this allowed the restoration work to take place to restore it to effectively its original form. It's about twenty centimeters high or so, little bulbous pear-shaped thing. So not massive, but beautifully decorated. Beads around the foot hammered out of the silver, gilding applied to various places, and two main friezes of decoration. The big frieze, the bulk of the story, is aspects of, of early Christianity. Two scenes from the Old Testament, two scenes from the New Testament. And one of these scenes shows Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden with the snake offering tempting words. One of these scenes shows the flight from Israel with Moses striking the rock of Horeb to bring forth water for the Israelites. So two key elements within the Old Testament story. And then within the New Testament story, there's a very clear image, which is the three magi, the wise men, bringing gifts to to Mary and the Christ child. A beautifully depicted scene with the, the wise men in their ornate robes and their typical Eastern caps, and Mary sitting in a very nicely defined beautifully depicted chair with the Christ child in her lap. And then there's a a fourth scene that has always proved mysterious. Mysterious because it's damaged. A handle has been removed from this flagon and that seems to have caused damage to the decoration. And opinions have varied enormously. Some people thought it represented the betrayal of Christ so the story of Judas. Some people thought it represented um, St Peter denying he knew Christ. Some people thought it represented the miracle of the quails in the desert, which is an Old Testament story. The basic problem with that is that there are no quails. So it's a, a quail-free interpretation, which is a, a fairly major flaw. So opinion has been highly divided. We were really lucky to get the skills of Josef Engerman, the late Josef Engerman, who's professor in Christian archaeology at the University of Bonn for many years. And one of the great scholars of early Christian art, late antique art. And he thinks what it shows is the scene of the ascension. You have these figures standing there in a gesture of amazement, as far as we can see, and the central damaged figure, who's clearly caught in motion, if you like, and is pointing at the ground, seems to represent an angel. And there's a scene, there's a, in the description of the ascension, a messenger in white appears as if by magic and says, you know, Christ will reappear at this point. So Engerman argues, and I think it's very convincing, this is a depiction of the ascension. So on this flagon, we have both So we have the two key moments in Christ's life, his birth and his ascension to heaven. So that's the main story. The frieze up above it, a really narrow little frieze up above it, has often been called just decorative. It's got sheep and buildings and vegetation and so on. But what Josef Engerman was able to say is this also links into the story. The building isn't just a building. The building is a stable. This is a stable from Bethlehem where Christ is born. And you then have badly damaged figures of shepherds and sheep who are tending their flocks when they became aware of the birth of Christ. And you also have depicted in one corner a star, the star of Bethlehem drawing the wise men from the east. So you have this really nice evocation of key aspects of the Christian story and linking between the two friezes. It's a really complicated piece of art. Really commonplace, but extraordinary that it survives and that you've been able to piece it together and deduce so much from it. I mean, uh, thank you for explaining all that because it did really feel like all that detail, we should definitely go into it. It is amazing. But away from the slightly bigger objects, as it were, because smaller items too within the hoard, they're smaller, but size isn't everything with the hoard because it really does seem these are some of the most extraordinary items 
when we focus in on the smaller ones that survive. Mm, absolutely. One of the key things is the coins. I guess your coins are the kind of thing you might expect to find hoarded. They're often hoarded in great numbers. In Treprain, we have five. So it's not exactly a fantastic, a fantastic coin hoard. And they are tiny. You know, they're 10 millimetres across. They're little things called siliquy. And yet there is something funny about them. Siliquy are not meant to be 10 millimetres across. They're about twice that size when they're minted. So these are what are known as clipped siliquy. People have trimmed the edges off the silver, nibbling away little bits of silver, but always being keen to leave the face of the emperor behind. So the coins still have literally a face value. Now, if you want to start an argument among coin specialists, if you lob a clipped siliqui in, they will argue happily for days on end about it. But bits of a consensus have begun to emerge in recent years. The first is that this is a very British habit. Clipped siliqui are vanishingly rare in any other province outside Britain. And when you do find them, they tie into Brits abroad. So a number of them are connected with the movement of soldiers leaving Britain in 409 under the usurper Constantine III. And he campaigns through bits of the near continent. And where he campaigns, you find hordes with these clipped siliqui. So these are coins that have come from Britain to the continent. They are otherwise a very British habit. Why are they doing it? Well, normally people see clipping as fraudulent. You're trying to sneak bits of silver off a coin and on an individual coin, this makes no difference at all. If you clip thousands of coins, then it's actually a significant amount of silver. Um, there was a, a great hoard of you know, tens of thousands of siliquay from Hoxton in Suffolk. And Peter Guest worked on this material and he calculated that you'd have got a couple of kilograms of silver from all the clipping they were doing. So it's a significant resource you're getting. But is it really fraudulent? Because what they're doing with this stuff, it seems, is making new coins. We find copies of these siliquay in Britain at this time. And there's a plausible argument that what you're seeing is the remains of the government of Roman Britain desperately trying to sustain some kind of market economy after the Roman world has washed its hands of this troublesome island. So silver stops flowing into Britain pretty much around about 409. When Constantine III takes the best bits of the army out of Britain, silver stops coming back to Britain. Once he's killed, silver does not come back to Britain. The Roman Empire does not try to re-engage with Britain. But of course, there was an existing power structure, an existing government structure. And one of the arguments is the people in that government structure are trying to keep coinage going. And they're doing that by, with a finite resource of silver, they're clipping down these coins in order to mint new silver. The concentration of this material is very much in the civilian zone. It's in the south and the east of the country where the towns and the big villas are. And that gives us another clue. These clipped siliquay from Treprain are not telling us about the frontier. They're showing us relationships to the world further south. People in Treprain are players in a world beyond the frontier. They are dealing with groups beyond just in their immediate zone. It's wonderful. As we start to wrap up with all of these artefacts that there were from the Horde, how much it tells us about, I guess, the nature of Britain at that very in many times, quite a murky time, isn't it? That early 5th century that we don't know too much about. This hoard is helping shine more light on it. Absolutely. I think it's one of the great benefits of archaeological evidence is that you can cast light into the dark shadows. And particularly here, it's by going back to an apparently well-known find. 
Your trepain's been out to the ground for over a hundred years. Curl's publication of it is exemplary. It's a fantastic publication, but his focus was on the original objects. When you begin to ask, so for, so for him, the hacking was an inconvenience. That's why he saw it as yeah, the work of barbarians. He wasn't really that interested in the hacking. For me, the hacking is a key part of the story because it reveals stories about the Roman economy and how it deals with, with times of trouble. But in particular, it deals with the way that looks at the way Rome is dealing with people beyond its frontier. And in Britain, in Ireland, in the Netherlands, in Germany, in Denmark, silver, hacked up silver, is the way you're dealing with these groups beyond the frontier. And in particularly in Britain and Ireland, it's silver, not gold, that matters. On the continent, they're interested in gold as well. In Britain, they're pretty much ignoring gold. Silver is the stuff that really matters to them. And this becomes the power symbol, the raw material of choice for the emerging early medieval kingdoms, recycling the silver into prestige goods north of the old wall. Perhaps it might be a bit difficult question to ask. We start wrapping up, but it's one that comes to mind because sometimes when someone mentions the word hoard, and might think of the Corbridge hoard, you get an idea that someone's just trying to save what they've got by putting it all together in this hoard and then obviously they don't come back and get it and it's found there by later generations. But with Trepray, and you mentioned how we've got artefacts, you know, over several centuries there, do we know why it's a hoard, as it were? Why is all of this stuff together at Trepray? Why is it left in this state? That's one of the really tricky questions to answer. And for any particular hoard, it's really difficult to answer why is it gathered and why is it left there? In the case of Trepain, I think it, in that sense, it's a treasury. It's material that's been gathered together that represents the collected wealth of you know, the, the, the powerful people on the site or one particular sept you know, of, of, of the people on the site. So, and it's gathered over several generations. And every so often they'll draw on it to recycle, to, to melt down, to make wonderful silver chains, perhaps to, to give as, as gifts to clients, you know, building their, their own social relations. Silver becomes the oil that lubricates the social wheels, giving gifts of silver objects to other people. But the question of why it's buried is intriguing, but also really hard to answer. It's easy to think that people bury treasure because they're under threat. This is the standard view of hoards. That may be true, but if that was the true, it wasn't an existential threat for the site because the site keeps going. This hoard is buried in the middle of the 5th century. There's activity on the site through the rest of the 5th century and beyond. So it's not a catastrophic attack on the site. It may be a very personal reason. It may be this particular family are, are heading off on a, on a raid or a tour somewhere and they don't come back. So I think with the Treprain hoard, it's likely it was buried for safekeeping. But this is not a universal explanation for hoards. There are three other hack silver hoards from Scotland. And in each of those, excavation at the fine spot tells a very different story. Each of those comes from beside an ancient monument. So there's a hoard from Gallcross in Aberdeenshire, which is buried between two stone circles. There's a hoard from Norris Law in Fife, which is buried beside an ancient burial cairn. And these are both Pictish hoards with Roman hack silver in them. But the one I really like is a hoard from Dercy in Fife. This is purely Roman silver. It dates about 100 years or so before Treprain. It's the earliest evidence of hack silver beyond the frontier. It's the first evidence for hack silver being used as a way of dealing with barbarians. It was found by in a metal detecting rally. The detectorists told us about it, and we went out to excavate the fine spot, recovering more silver, but critically recovering a context. So this hoard, 
from Dersey was buried not just in a random field, but between two important monuments or, or sites. It was buried to one side of a peat bog, to the other side, two standing stones, two old standing stones. The standing stones are, by this stage, already ancient monuments, places that would have had stories and the myths and the memories attached to them. Peat bogs are like the wishing wells of prehistory. They are sacred places where you deposit things in order to contact the gods. So this was not just being placed and being buried for safety. This was being buried in a special, most likely a sacred place, as some kind of offering. So on the one hand, you have Traprain being buried, I think, for safety, but other silver is being buried as offerings, as sacred possessions. So we shouldn't just assume hoards implies trouble. Hoard can also imply offering and the deliberate sacrifice of wealth as a way of winning favour with the gods, of marking major life events, of showing what a, a rich and powerful person you are. Well, there you go, Fraser. This has been an absolutely great chat. I mean, we've only just scratched the surface of the Traprain treasure. We didn't talk about the, the Panthers or the jewellery. There's so much more, but people can learn all about that from your new book on this, which is called? It's called The Late Roman Silver Treasure from Traprain Law. Uh, he has to think very rapidly there. It is. It has been due to come out for ages. It's been badly held up by COVID and pandemic and, and all kinds of things. But I am assured it is imminently out. It's off at the press just now, so it should be out very soon. Fantastic. Well, Fraser, it only goes to me to say thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, there you go. There was Dr. Fraser Hunter talking all about the Traprain treasure. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Now, if you'd like more Ancients content in the meantime, you can, of course, subscribe to our weekly newsletter via a link in the description below. Every week, I write a bit of a blurb for that newsletter explaining what's been happening in Team Ancient History Hit World that week. If you'd also be kind enough to leave us a lovely rating on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from, I was greatly appreciate it. And that's enough from me dialing in from the Royal Armouries in Leeds, and I will see you in the next episode. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.